Each of us has a purpose. We are destined to do something meaningful, not only to support our loved ones, but to positively impact our communities throughout the country. What do you think a private Christian education looks like? Grand Canyon University offers over 175 high-quality online programs across nine colleges. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu. Right, so the France-Australia game has just finished. Uh, it was a nerve-wracking affair for Philippe, who's a <laughs> primary French fan, and uh, I'm sure anyone who watched the game could understand why. So I'm going to start with you, Phil. Are you, how are you feeling now? I feel a lot better now. I think that, that genuinely would have ruined my day. Yes. Um, if, if it, even if it just ended the, ended the draw. Yeah. Um, that having been said, I, um, as always is the case, when you just sort of kind of reflect a little bit, actually it's not that bad. France got three points on the board against mm-hmm. a really well-equipped, equi- well uh, strong Australian side. Mm. And those you need wins like that to kind of progress in the tournament. So mm. hopefully there'll be a bit more kind of attacking flair that a lot of people would like to see from France in the next two games. But for now, I think that's... It is, yeah, that will do. <laughs> it's, but yeah, because it's, it's good to expect, isn't it? Okay, uh, Alex, what did you make of the game then? Is it much of, of what Phil just said? I mean, Australia played very well, didn't they? They'll be disappointed to have not come away with the draw, at least. Yeah, I think it, it's a difficult one because they won't have gone into the game expecting, I, I doubt, for all the positivity that you get from players talking about matches beforehand. You know, yeah. oh, we're here to win and stuff, I think. Yeah it would have been a stretch to consider anything other than a loss yeah. as likely here. But it's very encouraging for them, certainly. Van Marwick is a good defensive coach. Um, they did look extremely organised. They're not a bad squad. They've got, particularly in, in Yedinak and Moy, they've got two Premier League quality midfielders mm. who are extremely hard-working and talented. Yeah. So, you know, you could see clearly what their game plan was. They executed it well. Um, a little bit unfortunate in some regards, yeah. but then you know they they didn't create many chances themselves. So no, um, well, we're currently watching uh, on on mute, but we're watching uh, Mila Yedinak give the Australian team a, a team talk on field after the game. There, they'll be hoping perhaps they can get some results out of the next two games. Yeah, I th- I think they'll probably look at, at targeting Denmark as as a a winnable match because. Um, as I said before with Denmark, I think if you can nullify Ericsson, then you can nullify Denmark by mm. and large. And, uh, you know, Jedanak will probably just sit on him and try and prevent him from pulling the strings. Well, on the strength of today's performance, France looked quite stilted. How much of, of that would you credit to Australia nullifying France's midfield? And, how, you know, because if that's the case, then you think they probably have a good chance against Denmark if it is simply a case of nullifying Ericsson. Yeah, I, th- I think Australia's fullbacks actually nullified f- the the French wide players more. Um, I think the issue with France's midfield was still that the that balance between solidity and pushing forwards to create isn't quite right yet. Mm. Um, I I expected Tolisso to be more dynamic and to get forward in support more, which he didn't, um, and that that left Griezmann looking a little bit isolated at times. Is there a shout for Matuidi to start perhaps instead of the next game? Matuidi certainly gets forwards more than than Tolisso did in that game, mm. but if you've watched Bayern a lot this season, which 
we have because of the stuff we do in the Bundesliga. That's that's not how Tolisso normally plays. Yeah. He is normally much more dynamic. Do you think that's coached? Is that is that a Deschamps thing, or or is that? Yeah, I think I think Deschamps has a, a, a natural proclivity towards um, being a bit more conservative yeah. and and probably expects that because he's got this very fluid. Uh, very quick front three that actually the midfield's job is to stay solid and release those players with longer passes rather than necessarily get up and support them and create uh, more of a a dynamic um, transition throughout the pitch as a whole and I think that's probably a mistake because Philippe you're not a a, much of a Deschamps fan are you? No no, as a a manager not with this side at least and I think what we discussed earlier on was that Alex said is it's, it's still a very young French side that's still kind of forming up a little bit Yeah. Um, so you know I, I'd sympathise with Deschamps in that respect as well trying to uh, impose his kind of managerial philosophy with uh, a group of players that are perhaps a bit more dynamic Yeah. whereas I at the same time I, I would like for there to be possibly to be a French manager that kind of understands what those French players are best at doing at their clubs and yeah. trying to sort something around that rather than what Deschamps is doing so I suppose it's a bit of a tricky situation as well I mean I'm sure lots of people will be talking about Paul Pogba but given the the season that he's had at United which was by no means a bad season but certainly it just made me think there what you were saying Phil about bringing a manager who knows what the players do best at their clubs I'm not sure Pogba really knows what he's best at doing now do you get that impression from watching France as well as Man United? I get that impression usually watching Pogba at France less. Yeah. Um, I think it, it, in, in qualifiers, Pogba's been notably better. Yeah. And uh, certainly in kind of friendlies, so okay, you're, you're a little bit more kind of loosened up during friendlies to kind of express yourself a yeah. bit more. But um, yeah, that that could be the exception, I guess. Yeah. Um, but I, I, I've I've noted that mm-hmm. he, he generally plays a bit, bit a bit more freedom of the, the, the Pogba that we'd like to see with the national team rather than United at least this year. Yeah. And uh, Alex. One of the things that we said during this game uh, was that uh, as France looked a little bit stunted, it was a little bit like watching an England team, although you remarked that it was slightly more disappointing because you would expect more from France. Yeah, I think um, I think France probably have slightly greater attacking capability than England. Uh-huh. Um, but, you know, it's the first game of the World Cup... It's a young French squad. There, there's not necessarily that degree of leadership, um, except for Loris. It's it's a pretty young team. Yeah. Um, you know, Kante is kind of a, a leader by example, but I think he's quite a quietly spoken guy. He's not. You know, there aren't there aren't big characters in this French side, mm. and they came up against uh, a very well organised, solid. Australia, who yeah. had a clear game plan and executed it very well. Yeah. So, well, let's talk about Giroud because he's uh, in in some ways. We mentioned when we were watching the game, we were sort of idly chatting about Maran Fellaini as well because in Giroud, France have a very clear plan B, which uh, is perhaps sometimes understated. Certainly, as part of the Premier League season, I think players like that are perhaps not granted the credit that they maybe deserve. In a tournament situation like this, if France are struggling against a team, much as they did today against Australia, is it not a great thing to have a player like Olivier Giroud to come on and you know almost completely change uh, the, the, the potential attacking outlets of the team? Oh, totally. And, and Giroud is, 
I think to to sell Giroud as a as a kind of default plan B is um, to diminish his his all round game. Yeah. Um, I, you know he's he's a very competent link up player. He's a good shooter. He's still capable of doing it for ninety minutes. I, I would suggest it's it's more that I think because of the way um, teams, particularly teams with front threes in a four three three, like to play, mm. there is an assumption that players with a bit more pace, a bit more dynamism and an ability to kind of drop off and play um, further back and into the wide spaces as well in a way that Sejiro doesn't. Mm. You know, Harry Kane does it, Griezmann does it, you know, that that sort of uh, more rounded striker is the striker that tends to get picked. And is there not a way, if you you know, if you put yourself in, in Deschamps' shoes, I suppose he wants to keep three three men in midfield, is there not a way to accommodate both Giroud and Griezmann without losing your wide forwards. I mean, Phil, have they done that at any point in qualifying? Not that I can remember, because it was the, the qualifying was almost in, almost like in two halves a little bit. Right. They were playing a very, very um, Deschamps-esque, conservative way of playing until they um, lost due to a freak Norris error away right. in Sweden. Yeah. Up until then, the French, the French sort of football viewing public were. Kind of happy to uh, to accept that Deschamps was playing with France the way that they were, whilst yeah. they were still winning games. At the moment that happened, and this is a time when he wasn't really playing players like Mbappe yeah. and Lamar and some of these kind of the younger players that a lot of people wanted to see. That kind of switched it, and they, there was that moment where they think, okay, now you need to play these players because we've just lost away in Sweden, yeah. and as a result, there was these kind of pretty bombastic yeah. results against Holland there was obviously the nil-nil against Luxembourg which was a bit of a freak really yeah okay but um, no I mean is it, with that I mean I, th- I think that um, in against teams like sort of Australia and perhaps actually a lot you know a lot a lot of the teams in the group stage including possibly Peru that's where Jury can be really effective against sort of breaking certain teams down mm. but I think the latter stage of the competition when France plays some better teams at Essentially, allow them to play football. That's when the, that front three of them, that yeah. Griezmann and then Bele, could really kind of come into their own. Okay, yeah, I suppose trying that, to that front three is going to be a lot better against teams that are trying to push forwards and attack themselves. Yeah, um, because that's when the space will open up. Yeah, I think in answer very quickly to your question, it would be very difficult to play Griezmann and Giroud together and, and not Pogba. sacrifice width. Yeah, well. If you go to a two in midfield yeah. um, and play Griezmann off Giroud, that's what I was going to say. Then you run the risk of not getting the best out of Pogba. Yeah. And Kante is not as much of a kind of classic ball winner as someone like a Makaleli. He yeah. is more dynamic. Um, what you could do is play kind of like a three-one-two as your forward six, yeah. and and have that same three-man midfield, and then play Fakir in the 10 role behind Griezmann dropping off a bit and then Giroud up front but you sacrifice so, Mbappe and Dembele to do that right and if you were going to do that that would be fine but you'd need to pick Mendy mm. and Sadebi as your full backs yeah. rather than Pavard and Hernandez this is the sort of situation in which people would say is not a uh, it's not a bad problem to have but <laughs> no, at times like not. this it, it sort of feels like it might be you know trying to trying to fit some uh, squares into circle holes but uh, okay well that's France we'll look forward to seeing them in their next game, uh, a quick word on, on on the next game to come: Argentina, Iceland. Obviously, people will be listening to this after the games have all finished. But uh, what will you be looking out for from uh, Argentina? Let's say, Alex. 
some sort of sense that they have tactical coherence. Okay. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, not not to be kind of snide about it, but it, if if you're playing almost a different system in every single game uh-huh. in the run up to a World Cup, it is difficult to know how a side's going to play. I, yeah. Sam Kelly, um, who's uh, an expert on Argentine football, um, he's very confident they will go for a fairly standard 4231. Mm-hmm. So I wouldn't be surprised to see that happen. Okay. If that does happen, I, I strongly suspect that's the system that will then persist throughout the tournament. Okay. But with San Pauli, you don't know. And give us a little uh, prediction then, why not? We've been doing that so far. Uh, what, for Argentina Iceland? Yeah. Um, I think uh, Argentina will win, but it'll be narrow, like a 1 0. I'm going to say 2 0 Iceland. Okay, I know, just for fun. Bold. I, I, and uh, Philippe, you're, you're heading off to uh, spend time with the in-laws for the rest of the day, so I want to get predictions from you for the rest of the games. Rest of the games. Let's um, start with uh, Argentina-Iceland. Uh, I'm going to go a bit mad and say like, 4-1 Argentina. Okay. Uh, just sort of c- come out of the blocks and um, you know look a bit kind of weird and incoherent, but just... I like that. Moments of brilliance. Yeah. Peru-Denmark is up next. Um, well, I'll chat to you, Alex, about that later, but for Philippe, for now. I'd say 2-1 Peru. Okay, and your last one is Croatia-Nigeria. Um, I'll say 2-2. Two, 2-2. Two. Two, two. That'll be a fabulous game if it I is. I think it will be either way. Regardless of whether that's a correct prediction, I think that Alex said yesterday that could be one of the games of the day. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think where that happens, I think it's going to be an absolute cracker. There's okay. some really amazing talent on both both sides. Yeah, great. Uh, well, um, you're off now, so we'll catch up with you again tomorrow. But um, back in a bit. Well, that's the end of the Argentina-Iceland game. A thrilling affair it was. It finished 1-1. Not really what what either of us expected. I expected an Iceland 2-0 victory, as I said. You were expecting Argentina to win. But what we saw was something that we've talked about uh, throughout the season, actually, largely in relation to Burnley and Sean Dyche, uh, with a low block. And uh, I suppose that game and Iceland's performance was a fantastic example of what is possible playing in that style, particularly against a team like Argentina, who have an incredible array of, uh, of attacking talent, but didn't have, um, well, didn't create the chances, I suppose, or couldn't break them down. Yeah, I think um, the results, or the, the result wasn't what either of us predicted, but the, the way the game played out kind of was, Yeah. Um, in terms of Iceland being extremely well organised, having very little possession, looking to hit Finn Bogson with long passes on the break, supported by Sigurdsson, um, and Argentina lacking, uh, really I suppose, not. I don't want to say lacking a cutting edge, because um, Aguero finished that goal superbly, but just in their build-up play, seeming disjointed, there was... A significant gap between Mascherano and Biglia, or Biglia, however you're supposed to say it, uh, and the uh, the attacking unit, um, and it seemed quite disjointed until that kind of period of sustained pressure. Once over Benega came on, he's a little more creative from a, a deeper line position. In, in fact, I, you know, when he's playing in a um, 
for Sevilla, he's much more creative. But mm. he, it, there, there seems to be a, a kind of a disjunct here between how uh, Argentina could play with who they've got and how they're actually playing. Yeah, well, actually, we, we were talking about this during the game as well, the fact that Messi was playing in the 10 role, which is something that I think has been... It's been tested, and obviously, you know, he's a fantastic player, and, and you could argue that he could, he can play anywhere. But it seems that with Barcelona, in, in certainly in the last three or four years, they've settled with him playing out on the right, um, and we've seen that for for Argentina as well. At times, it seems to work quite a lot better, and you could make an argument to say that you free up more space for more of the attacking talent. Some of whom started on the bench today. If you play Messi out there, so what what do you think is the thinking of playing Messi in the ten? And not not out on the right because we saw was it Mesa who was playing out there? Yeah, Mesa was playing out there. I think it, it could be as straightforward as as seeing that because Messi is Argentina's star man, putting him central where he can arguably push up left or right or uh, straight up alongside Aguero, he is more likely to be involved in more facets of the game yeah. playing centrally. But if you're playing against a side like Iceland who will defend quite narrowly yeah. and with uh, as little space as possible between the defensive line of four and the midfield line of four, then actually that space in which you're asking Messi to operate is more congested. Yeah. If he had played outright, then presumably what would have had to happen is that the um, Iceland left midfielder and left back would have been stretched further out. Yeah. That would have created a gap either for the um, right back to kind of cut inside, and and by um, playing Savio at right back, um, they're playing somebody who effectively is is a winger yeah. quite a lot of the time. So he would have been able to cut inside, presumably into that space that's created if the left hand side of the Icelandic defence didn't move over then Messi's got time to dribble uh, with the ball at his feet or look up and, and pick a pass. So yeah. it, it does seem odd. I mean, he won a lot of free kicks. So the only thing I was thinking during the game was that you know Messi charges into congested areas right down the centre. He gets fouled a lot. He wins a lot of free kicks. But what we saw in this game, and again, to, you know, to reference Burnley as well, what we see when um, some of the more attacking teams in the Premier League play against Burnley is that they're reduced to a lot of shots from outside the area and a lot of free kicks from outside the area. And on the one hand, it looks like there's a total attacking dominance, and the statistics will probably tell you that as well. But presumably those shots have a far lesser chance of being converted, right? I mean, Iceland would have been fairly happy to have even Messi, I suppose, shooting from outside the area because the chance of a goal is going to be far diminished. And particularly when you've got centre-backs that are... Because they're so narrow and central, those centre-backs are in blocking positions, mm. covering parts of the goal as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you know, Hal Dawson did have to make a couple of good saves from open play and obviously also save that penalty. Yeah. So it's not like, um, you know, Iceland weren't threatened to to quite a degree there. But by and large, it, it was that sort of dominance that, you know, it's like, I, I think the ITV... Um, Halftime punditry made the point that that it's it's a similar sort of defensive outlook to how Atletico Madrid play, which is to say, we don't mind if you have the ball, mm. if you have the ball for sustained periods, um, if you're just passing it 
laterally in front of two banks of four, that's not really going to do anything. No. Um, when the ball moves out a little bit wider, you push out to that player and try and close down the option. Mm. It's switched back inside. You can then contract ever so slightly. And that's a psychological thing, right? Because you, you see, we're very used to seeing um, teams like uh, Barcelona or even Bayern Munich, for example, pushing up very, very high throughout games, uh, creating intense pressure for long periods of time. Uh, in conditions that such under under which smaller teams will often falter, but with Iceland, with Burnley, with Atletico Madrid, these teams are comfortable not not being with the ball, right? And they're not panicking. You didn't see that from Iceland even in the last five minutes. And there were periods throughout that game where Argentina were camped in in the final third for five minutes at a time yeah. with shots, shot after shot after shot well, Iceland and Iceland don't panic. shot in the right. second half. Right. But they um, don't, they, 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 the psychological impact there must be huge because they're, they're not panicking in a way that teams who aren't used to that do panic because yeah. they assume that something's going wrong. For Iceland, they're thinking this is exactly what we expected and what we want to happen. Yes, and and this is also exactly how they played in, in the Euros. Yeah. So this is a clearly designed well thought out and practiced game plan yeah um so yeah you're exactly right it's not like the desperate last five minutes of a game when a team is kind of backs to the wall defending and you yeah. can you can see really good defenses really strong teams yeah. who aren't getting used into to that, that who aren't used to it mm. you know who arguably man for man you might consider to have a better set of players yeah Getting into that position and thinking, like you say, God, we need we need to get rid of the ball. We need to scuff it out. Whereas, mm. if um, if that's what you're used to and that's what you're expecting, and you're able to keep that line, you're able to keep that defensive pattern. You're confident in the ability, particularly of your centre backs, to clear anything aerially. Mm. Uh, in the concentration of your midfield players to keep that shape, then it isn't a problem. Yeah. It's, it's something that's that's fine, and Great. they they will have seen. Conversely, from again from a psychological perspective, they'll be sitting there thinking we're doing exactly what we want to do, mm. and we're organised and we're tight and we know why we're doing it. Argentina are the ones that are getting frustrated. Mm. They're the ones who are desperately probing for that opening. Mm-hmm. You could see Messi's body language getting more and more irate as that half progressed. Yeah. Um, it it that that's actually where the the psychological impact is because mm. they're thinking, Christ, what do we have to do to break this lot down? Yeah. Well, let's talk briefly about Group D then. Uh, before this game, it was a fascinating group. After this game, it's, I mean, arguably even more exciting. Uh, the, the, the second fixture later on today is Croatia-Nigeria, which again is a very difficult game to predict. Now that uh, Iceland-Argentina has ended in a draw, I mean, I'm not even sure what, what, to, what to think about this group going forward. Nigeria could very easily win the game later, so could croatia Iceland could very easily get draws or wins against both of those teams. Argentina could obliterate or fall apart. I mean, it's fascinating, isn't it? Yeah, we we made this point in our Group D preview video that that this is the sort of group where you you've got you've got teams with a, a series of different strengths and weaknesses, mm. and when those teams are all playing against each other, you know, obviously Iceland extremely cohesive and, and defensive, mm. struggle to score goals. Well. Argentina are almost the exact inverse of that. Nigeria, very, very good going forwards, very quick, very strong in central midfield, but not particularly strong in their back four. Mm-hmm. Croatia, some very talented individual players, not necessarily 
the sort of team that works well with all of those players playing together in the same side. Mm. We talked yesterday on the pod about the Modric-Rakitic thing mm-hmm. and how that could present a problem. So, you know, when I, I kind of said a couple of days ago that it would not surprise me at all if the two teams to get out of this group were Iceland and Nigeria. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think that's what's great about this group is that you... I think any any of those teams could be the two that go through. Yeah, which is fascinating. Well, next up is uh, Peru, Denmark. So we're going to watch that uh, in a little bit, and we'll uh, come back and chat about it afterwards. Oh, the World Cup! An example of a game there. Uh, it was tense towards the end. Uh, of course, Peru, we were expecting beforehand, you were quite confident of a Peru victory, and I can see why, Alex, because you could make an argument that they were on top for large portions of the game. You noted at one point that the uh, the likely XG would be uh, would show a, a, a Peru... Uh, I don't know how to say that, but you know what I'm saying. Uh, but, of course, a Yusuf Poulsen goal, perhaps against the turn of play saw Denmark win and it's going to be troubling for Peru now uh, because obviously France won against Australia earlier a victory against Denmark would have been key to qualification from the group so it's going to be tough the way what we were talking about during the game was I suppose if Peru have any chance of beating France that's probably their best route now uh, towards the the knockout stages or if France beat everyone else and there's some sort of goal Goal difference fiasco. Um, but what? How do you explain what happened to Peru there? Beyond Kasper Schmeichel having a good game because they created a lot of chances and uh, both of their wide forwards were were very very good, with the exception, I suppose, of of the penalty. Yeah, I, I think I think Kasper Schmeichel was the biggest single difference there. Um, it, it felt towards the end of that game a little bit like Argentina Iceland, except Peru probably attacked better than Argentina did and Denmark maybe didn't defend quite so well um, I think you you and I were talking before this uh, where you observed that um, Cueva was was sort of creating quite a lot but often picking the wrong option, he was getting himself into a good position to mm. make the pass and then the, the final ball was maybe slightly overhit I thought he's Peru, very nifty he's very nifty, he's a very skillful player um, I, I thought Peru probably floated the ball in a little bit too much. Yeah. Um, I think that works when Guerrero is on, and obviously he came on um, towards the end, but they didn't start with him up front. They started with Jefferson Farfan, and I think for a player like Farfan, um, you want low whipped crosses in. So yeah. it, was, it was kind of like they were almost uh, setting up a player who wasn't actually on the pitch because that's kind of what they were used to. Yeah. Um, I think Korea had an excellent game. Um, Tapia and Yotan looked very, very solid in, in midfield. Well, I was going to say about uh, about Korea because he, um, I suppose, well, along alongside uh, Cueva, he was creating quite a lot, particularly towards the end. I mean, some of those darting runs past uh, the past the Danish uh, wing, Danish fullbacks that were very impressive to watch. And I, I think what I noticed about him was that more often than Cueva, he did make the right choice in terms of his passing options but it just wasn't finished for whatever reason or the shot was straight at Schmeichel or you know is it is it a case of luck with with that with those sort of things or I, I think it's uh, it's difficult to call it luck because you know Schmeichel made some very good saves I, I think it's you know you could you could argue with that game that that 3-1 to Peru 
would have been a perfectly reasonable scoreline. Yeah. Um, I think that it, this is one of the things with football, isn't it? You kind of it's it's sort of stupid to say that a team didn't deserve to win when they won yeah. because clearly there's it's you know it's a team game. Everybody needs to contribute, but I think. Denmark, arguably, you know, their best player was their goalkeeper, yeah. and Peru were on the front foot. They were playing with a lot of pace. They were very, very direct. Their fullbacks were getting forward a lot. Um, they they massively outshot Denmark, and I thought, you know, okay, Sisto played quite well for Denmark. I don't think Eriksson massively got in the game. Obviously, there was the, he did create the pass for the Paulson goal. Though. He I mean, did do that. I was going to ask you, know, you about that because that's, I mean, again, it's a standout moment in the game. Obviously, it's the only goal. Um, but it was it was a very good pass to create the space for the goal. It was a lovely finish and as well. Paulson, yeah, Paulson finished really, really well. But I mean, if you have Ericsson, if you have a player like that who's capable, just one time in the game, of taking that opportunity, threading the needle and making a pass like that, that's ultimately what's made the difference today. And, and I suppose that's that's the comparison between the new the two number 10s, yeah. is that, that Ericsson, when he had that opportunity to play a, uh, someone through directly and onto the goalkeeper, mm. the ball was perfect. And, and too often... Peru's final pass, particularly from Cuevo, just wasn't quite yeah. good enough. Um, so let, let's look forward then to Peru against France. As I mean, it's, it's not at all a foregone conclusion against uh, Australia. In fact, one of the things we were saying was that um, during the game was that uh, you, you made the point that they weren't exactly struggling to break down Denmark, but they weren't taking those chances against Australia. You would imagine. As we saw earlier today, they had a very organised, tight-knit defence. It might be a similar situation for Peru. You know, you'd hope that maybe luck or whatever it is will be on their side during that game. But against France, what do you think their chances are? How do you think you're likely to set up? Or certainly at the beginning of that game, what would you be looking out for from the Peru side uh, to have any chance of, of beating France if that's their most likely route now to the knockout stages? Well, I, I, I mean, I think it's... It's by no means beyond the bounds of possibility, and I am I am a Peru fanboy, and I've been saying that they're very good since really since we did that that Group B preview. So that's you know getting on for about ten days ago. Um, I think Guerrero probably will start the next two games. Mm. He didn't start this one because of match fitness because he was brought into the squad quite late. That will definitely make a difference for them. He's a talismanic figure. He is their leading goal scorer. And he looked he, great when he came on. Yeah, he did. That little back heel was, was fantastic. Mm. Um, so I think that will lift them psychologically. It will also genuinely give them a greater threat, providing that they can they can produce for him. And I think there are enough signs there to show that they can. Mm. I think France, funnily enough, in an odd way, I think Peru probably have a better chance of beating France than they do of beating Australia almost because mm. I think Australia will will just do a better job of defending deep in a kind of Iceland style than France will France will look to push forward they'll look to stretch the game it'll be two very very quick teams playing against each other mm. and I will expect there to be greater gaps at the back uh, that Peru can try and exploit against France against Australia they'll hit those two banks of four um and it will be a lot trickier for them to get in behind. Mm. Uh, I, I think Guerrero will probably um, pose, you know, Sainsbury uh, a, a greater threat in the air. I, yeah. I think Australia will probably be a bit more vulnerable to that. Well, what's interesting, I suppose, for Peru as well <clears throat> is that their next game is against Australia. So it's the middle game. Australia won't be 
necessarily out there desperate to win. You know, they might still think if they can get a draw in that game and they can beat Denmark, who you could make the argument in this game look like the weaker team, then they'll be more likely to go out for everything in the final game, yeah. which makes it a little bit harder for Peru as that as that second game. But I suppose it makes it exciting for us that Peru and France will be playing each other in the final round of the group stage. Yeah, I think what you want is, uh, in terms of the way groups are, are set up with the fixtures, is you, you want the two strongest teams to be the final fixture. Mm. And yes, Peru have lost, but they were the stronger side today. I think I think Denmark-Australia could well play out as a stalemate, possibly even a nil-nil, because mm. I, I don't really see either of those sides having a huge amount of threat going forwards I think as Peru showed if you can sit at least one defensive midfielder on Ericsson for the majority of the game you can really restrict what he does mm. and there's not an awful lot that Denmark can do otherwise I mean even when Quist went off and he's very much a defensive midfielder and Lasse Schoener came on who is you know, I mean, Schoen has played as a 10 for quite a lot of his career, so you would have expected greater creativity from deep. That didn't really materialise. Mm. Poulsen took that shot very, very well, but he's, as we were saying before, he's kind of a, a defensive forward, kind of like a Shane Long. You know, he chases down a lot, he challenges a lot, he defends very, very well for a striker. Mm. Um, Sisto is a good player with the ball at his feet, but... I think was was isolated quite a lot. Larson wasn't really getting forward enough to support him. So, mm. you know, with with the, a very kind of compact defensive Australian side that'll be looking to play on the break, I can see them absorbing that sort of limited Danish pressure. Mm-hmm. And and you know that that game could go either way, but but to my mind will probably result in a draw. In which case, yeah, if Peru have beaten Australia, then it's all to play for going into that final game against France. Which makes it very exciting. Which makes it very exciting. And, and, and you know, France I will, will beat Denmark, so I, I still think it's very plausible that my my feeling that France would go through on top and Peru would come through second is, is still very much on. Well, cling to that, Alex. I am clinging to it, yes. Uh, we're going to watch the final game in a moment and we'll uh, come back and chat about that after it's happened. Okay, so we've reached the end of uh, Croatia, Nigeria. It's been a long day. Um, I have to say my two favourite moments, uh, not necessarily of this game, but of the portion of time in which we were watching this game. The first was when uh, Ali McCoist called Nigeria lazy, which I think is a bit of an overreaction. And uh, the second was when someone on Twitter called Alex a desperate hipster. (laughs) No, they. To be fair, they said my comment was desperately hipster. They didn't sure. say I was a. Yeah, I mean that that maybe is actually the extrapolation. True. In the room, I then said that you were a desperate hipster, uh, but you were called a desperate hipster because in the first half you tweeted that Nigeria was schooling Croatia, and I'd like you to defend that now uh, because I think it's a I think it's a valid comment. And actually, what this is probably the first time of the three days of the World Cup so far where I have been frustrated by the commentary. It's been a theme in the room. Philippe and yourself at times have been frustrated. I haven't really been listening. Uh, but this game was quite annoying because it felt like um, th- it felt like the commentators didn't really understand what Nigeria were doing or that they were playing quite well in parts of the game, particularly the first half. I mean, after the second goal, heads certainly dropped. And, you know, towards the latter stages of the game, it has been disappointing. 
But that certainly that certainly isn't, um, I think, a fair thing to say for the entirety of the game, and I imagine that you would agree, Alex. Yeah. So I I also got a tweet uh, a half time saying all three of the ITV pundits are disagreeing with me. When when those pundits are Roy Keane, Lee Dixon, and somebody else, I'm not too bothered by that. Um, I think in the first half, uh, Nigeria kept the ball a lot better. They had a much clearer shape. They reduced Croatia to playing it pretty aimlessly long and hoping that Kramaric and Mandzukic could hold it up. And, okay, yeah, you know, Mandzukic and Kramaric are both good at that and and for their club sides, um, they both tend to peel off into wide spaces. Mandzukic actually tends to start out quite wide and hold it up. Yeah. Um, Kramaric... We should point out as well that was one of the other other points in which uh, we thought the commentary was a bit silly because... uh, uh, Ali McCoist again, I think, was very confused about why Mandzukic kept pulling wide. Uh, but I mean, that's what he, that's what he does for his club. That, that's what he does for his club. And and Kramaric, um, who you know scored a lot of goals in the Bundesliga, but again, that he works very hard in the channels. Um, oh, the other commentator, Slavin Bilic, so he's probably biased. Um, you know, they 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 didn't. What seemed to me was that Nigeria had a clear game plan that they were executing well, mm. but for uh, Victor Moses falling over a little bit more often than perhaps he should have done, yeah. and Odia Nigalu not having a good game, no. um, Nigeria seemed to be in control for large parts of it. They had a lovely spell of possession that ended up with a, a long-angle ball out to Moses on the right, yeah. and Croatia couldn't get anywhere near them. And they looked pretty threatening. Yeah, and, and you know, that... that First goal that was conceded was was yeah, like Nigeria do have problems from set pieces, um, and we highlighted in our uh, preview video for this group that that perhaps defensively that was their weak area, but their midfield pivot kept its shape very well, and Didi played excellently. They had a clear game plan. Um, I think you you said during the match that Alex Awobi was very Arsenal, and I yeah. think there's something to that. You know, there were there were moments where. There was good build-up play, and then in the end, Nigeria seemed to sort of run into a bit of a cul-de-sac as Croatia fell further and further back. However, there was some nice intricate passing in the final third as well. Yeah, absolutely, and and I, I think it's I think there's a there's a preconception when you have, uh, as we said with with Croatia, they have uh, some extremely talented ball-playing midfielders in in Modric and Rakitic. Mm. And it's almost like, it's not the availability heuristic, but it's that sense of, I'm expecting to see Croatia's midfield running this game. Therefore, that is kind of what I'm seeing. Yeah. Even in spite of the fact that actually really until about the 60th minute, that isn't what was happening. Well, also, yeah, I mean, the reality of that was uh, a scrappy own goal, which was arguably against the run of play, a penalty uh, after a bizarre... You know, defensive mistake. I think you would call it. Or yeah. I mean, it's a very strange thing to do. I mean, um, that that is a penalty that, or that, that's an event that occurs in the Premier League an awful lot and doesn't mm, get given. I'm not yeah. saying for a second it wasn't a correct decision. And you do you do but, see them given, but yeah, it's, I guess it's one of those that you wouldn't be as surprised if it, if it wasn't. Yeah. Um, but you you made the point. I think uh, it was ten or fifteen minutes into the second half before Croatia had an attack on goal. You know, and um. I, I don't know. It felt it. Yeah, I think you're right. It well, the, felt the penalty like... was their only shot on target. Right. Um, there you go. So, 
it, it's just it's frustrating to see. You know, I I, I think a, a lot of this commentary has been quite bad. I was delighted um, that Simon Brotherton and Kevin Kilbane were doing an earlier game because I think they are a genuinely strong combination in commentary. But mm. there seems to be generally um, a preference for explaining teams that have predominantly European-based players, ideally Premier League-based players. There seems a lack of depth of research beyond that. Or well, players that the commentators will be aware of that seeing the, the Champions League. Yes, yeah. basically. Yeah. Um, and there's, uh, there's an assumption about how a team is going to play that then causes people to sort of read that into what's happening. Whereas, you know, what... what what we always try and do with with the videos that we make on Tifo is is not to assume anything. We're we're basing what we say in videos on having actually watched a number of games that that team have played in, and then just basically reporting and explaining what has happened in those games. Yeah, yeah. that's why our game. That's why our videos are not always accurately predictive, because a team can change what they do. Although yeah. I think you know, by and large, um, everything that we've written so far has more or less been proved true because yeah. because teams have stuck to what they've used during qualifying and then during friendlies so that's you know that's satisfying to be able to say that but if you watch a game you can't let those assumptions come into your mind when you're then watching it you have to say yeah. you know actually what we're seeing here is a Nigerian side that certainly for almost the entirety of the first half, controlled the tempo of that match. Now, it wasn't yeah. great tempo, it was quite slow at times, it, it seemed a lot less energetic than the games that were uh, previously in the day and also the previous games in this World Cup so far. I'm not saying mm. that either side was being lazy, that's the tempo the game was played at. But mm. to to kind of write Nigeria out of that first half and... and a, see Croatia playing brilliantly when they weren't is just bizarre well interestingly I, I think we have a, a very early Tifa video on confirmation bias that, that revolved <laughs> around, around Wayne Rooney uh, who at a time I think um, suffered from a similar thing we just uh, described for the Croatia team here. we shouldn't be too negative about, about Croatia uh, they managed to not concede any goals they scored two it look, you know, the, the, the result makes it look like it was a very healthy win and for them now they'll be topping the group, that will be a very good position for them in terms of uh, making it to the next round as Argentina were held to a draw by Iceland earlier in the day. So what do you think their chances are now of kicking on and making it happen in the next game? Well, I mean, it's it, it's three games per group, isn't it? So the, the kind of, you know, the early result is going to make a massive difference. Yeah. Um, I, think, I think if you're, as I said before... Can you see them breaking down Iceland, for example? I think I think they'll struggle to break down Iceland on the basis on the evidence of today. on the evidence of today, and I think for a similar sort of reason in that while Argentina and Croatia both have very strong attacking players, there didn't really seem to be a, a genuine understanding of how those players ought to relate to one another on the pitch to create a series of moves mm. that would then result in a shot and mm. and that's why I said Nigeria were playing better because they they did have that plan mm. it didn't work but the plan was clearly there whereas you Croatia see it, yeah. I I didn't really see that Argentina I didn't really see that so this you know this is probably the toughest group to call um arguably I think maybe group H is up there with that um, because all the teams are kind of on a par hit in in both of those groups, but 
I don't, I don't know. I, I can, you know, it's it's not ridiculous to see Iceland getting possibly even two wins out of their remaining two games. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's not ridiculous to see Argentina smashing five past Nigeria and then losing to Croatia. I mm. mean, it, like, mm. I yeah, I every team so far that I have backed to play well and win has played well and lost <laughs> <laughs> particularly Peru so I'm I'm now A. steering clear of the prediction business and B. not making any comment on England because no. okay. I don't want to upset anybody <clears throat> you don't want to jinx anything no no well yeah as, as I said at the beginning of, of this final section of today's podcast uh, I don't want to uh, I don't want to dither on the, the commentary but I can't really get over that lazy comment I can't understand how someone can make that I mean it's a it's a it's a football team at, at the World Cup. I realise that at times, particularly late on, Nigeria, the players, as I said, their heads dropped. They realised they had gone two 0 down. There's probably no way back from that, and I'm sure many of them are wondering how it happened. Um, but but calling calling a team lazy, it's it's a stupid comment, particularly when what Nigeria were doing well is keeping their shape. Yeah, and against a team that on occasions was able to pass it around a little bit, not as well as they probably ought to have done, to keep your shape means you have to be disciplined, you have to be concentrated, and you have to move around. And you expend a lot of energy. So, clearly, you aren't being lazy. No. Um, I, I, find, I sort of find it a bit galling. It's, uh, I just think it's a stupid comment. Yeah. Uh, and I think it's ill-informed. But then, you know, there is a there is a strain of, of sort of you know, bloke on the sofa punditry that we have to suffer during this tournament. Well, ironically, we're sat on a sofa right now. Yeah. And we're blokes, I suppose. Sure, but I I would... Yeah, okay. In a very literal sense, we are two blokes on a sofa. I would like to finish this off by saying that my third favourite moment of the last two hours was the moment at which Alex and I stepped outside, uh, (laughs) stood above the beer garden and heard a, a very London man... Uh, shout a phrase that I can't repeat here um, about uh, Nigeria not shooting when they should have, which uh, was, was a, it's a lovely moment. I quite like to hear it people was, getting passionate it about games. It was stirring, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, it was stirring. Yeah. It was stirring. And uh, that's a, a lovely tangent for me to remind you about the old Red Lion Theatre. Uh, we're here all month. We're upstairs at the moment. Uh, do come on down. If you live in London, it's a fabulous place to watch the football uh, the landlord and staff have been kind enough uh, to give us a temporary space upstairs to, to, to work out from. So if you do come down, uh, send us a little tweet. We, we might come down and say hi. There's a couple of big screens. There's tellies all over the place. There's a telly in the garden for all of the smokers. And there's a lovely theatre too. Um, and there's people shouting about football, which is exactly what you want at 9 o'clock on a Saturday. It's Saturday, isn't it? It is Saturday. I've lost it all feels sense of like time. it could be 2019 at this point. But it does. Yeah. It does feel like that. Well, anyway, uh, tomorrow we've got a tactics video going out on Brazil. Uh, they're playing the first game tomorrow, as are Germany. That's going to be an exciting day, so we'll come back and do a podcast uh, tomorrow as well. And I uh, hope you've all enjoyed a very long Saturday. See you later. Bye-bye. At American University, we don't just hope for change, we create it. We don't just dream of a better world, we make it a reality. With a graduate degree from AU, you'll access expert faculty and connections throughout D.C. to develop skills and experience to turn your passion into purpose. And that purpose can make all the difference in your career. 
Discover the difference a degree makes at American.edu/gradschool.